Alrighty. Hello and welcome back to the Fog Pod. I'm Savannah Dewberry, the Foghorn's chief of copy. And I'm Jordan Premer, the Foghorn scene editor. And with us today is the man, the myth, and the legend, President Paul Fitzgerald. Father, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well today. Now, Father Fitzgerald has taken time out of his busy, busy schedule to sit down with us and chat more about what makes him tick, what gets him out of bed in the morning, and who he is as a person. Father, are you ready to get personal with us? I am ready to go. Fantastic. All righty, Father. Would you walk us through a typical day for you, morning to night? Working at a university as complex and wonderful as the University of San Francisco. Through the course of a week, I may go to a student performance, a, an athletic contest. Um, certainly, there are some structures in my week. Like I meet with each vice president one-on-one, once a week. The vice presidents, um, which we call the cabinet, we meet together once a week. Um, but boy, March of 2020, the beginning of the pandemic, we met every day. <laughs> we met every day to try to figure out how are we going to keep our students safe? How are we going to keep our students engaged? How are we going to keep our students moving forward towards their degree programs? Um, so that was not at all typical. It feels today, you know, here we are, October of 2022, and maybe we're getting back to normal. Mm-hmm. What does a typical day off look like for you? Typical day off. Uh, Well, let me go back to the pandemic. So one of the things that was very unusual for me during the pandemic was that I ate dinner at home every (laughs) night. Because normally I'm out to dinner five nights a week, six nights a week, meeting with benefactors, going to a student performance, uh, going to a a basketball game. Um, So, And then weekends, uh, oftentimes, so this... Yesterday, Sunday, I went to the, uh, went, Saturday, I went to a baseball game, uh, Giants and the Diamondbacks. I wish I'd gone yesterday instead. They actually won yesterday. Um, it was not a, good, not a good game on Saturday, but it was great to be there, and the weather was terrific. And, um, but earlier that morning, I had had a, a little kind of a, a, a phone call with a, a, an old friend, a woman who's kind of in, in a tough spot right now in her life. So I just uh, listened to her and, and gave her some support. Um, Friday night was the Catholic Charities Gala. That was the first time in three years that we've been able to do that. Raises money for all of these programs that Catholic Charities does with, you know, uh, people who are unhoused or people who are, you know, learning new job skills or just a lot of really good programs uh, across the city. Fantastic. I just want to ask really quick, uh, in the simplest terms, what time do you get up in the morning and what time do you end up going to bed? So I hate alarm clocks. (laughs) I just hate them. So I only set an alarm if I absolutely have to get up. But otherwise, I sort of wake up when the sunlight starts to peek through. So, you know, 6, 30, 7, depends on the time of year. Um, and I, so me, Which means I try to get to sleep by 11 or so. Um, and then up, up early, I like to sit quietly for the first hour or so. Um, you know, get cleaned up and then go down and have breakfast. But, you know, say my prayers, sit, just be. Um, then, you know, get on with my day and go over to the office and usually I have my first appointment, uh, at 9 a.m. Oh, wow. 9 a.m. Is, is kind of like, but I may already be doing email, answering email and re- kind of looking ahead too. you know, what do I have to, today? Okay. What do I have to be ready for? And then email is relentless. Mm. 
is just relentless. It's like both handles turned really hot, you know, the water just rushing out. That's that's the, the faucet of emails. Well, it sounds like you're rising about the same time students are for their 8 a.m. So there's some solidarity there. Everybody's tired. Strong solidarity. Strong solidarity. You mentioned that you like to go out, like, well, you typically go out to eat every week. What's your favorite restaurant in the city? My favorite restaurant uh, right now, actually, the, my go-to place is, um, what's it called? Um, it's right on Geary at 6th in Bella Trattoria. Oh, yeah. Bella Trattoria. And I think it's pretty favorite among students. It's reasonable. It's very good. Um, and they're very nice. The, the, the wait staff are really nice people. Uh, if it's kind of an upscale thing, uh, then we'll go to Spruce. So upscale meaning like someone who's considering a large gift to the university and we want to show them, you know, have a nice meal and have a nice conversation. So Spruce is, for example, Susan Corrette. Um, Susan Corrette, the Corrette Foundation. The Corrette name is all over the campus. Uh, regular benefactors. She and her niece, Denise, uh, and I meet up at Spruce uh, every couple of months. That's lovely. Father, what was the last movie that you saw? You know, well, on TV, I probably saw a movie, you know, two nights ago, three nights ago, but in a movie theater, it's been so long. I don't remember. It's certainly like three years ago or more because like nothing during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What kind of movies do you like watching? Gosh. Well, you know, actually, I was on an airplane recently, so I watched a bunch of movies. Um, I do like Pixar movies. Because they're just hilarious and cute and funny. Um, so I, I, I'm maybe a little embarrassed that I'm watching the kids' movies. Um, and then, you know, uh, romantic comedies. Um, yeah, I like movies with a bit of drama. Because so, it's just like, like reading novels, right? It's a, kind of moving into someone else's life world. And I find that fascinating. That's actually really cool. I like Pixar movies a lot. Do you have a favorite Pixar movie? What was the one uh, where... Um, all of the emotions, you know, inside out, inside out. That was so fascinating. Yeah, and then was it the the was it a family where like the dad is super strong, the mom is super flexible, the Incredibles, and they take like stereotypes of people, right? So the daughter is so shy that she's invisible. Uh, and then the little baby is just rage, so it's just fire, just like. <laughs> Jack, Jack, exactly. Yeah, Jordan. And <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned novels. Are you like a voracious reader? I wish I had more time to read. I just finished uh, Valerie Biden Owens' uh, memoir. So Joe Biden's younger sister, Valerie, was on campus a couple weeks ago. Really? Well, I'm starting on uh, Wei Jin Shan's memoir. Wei Jin Shan is a financier in Hong Kong. He did his MBA here you know, 30 years ago. And he wrote a memoir, and there's a whole chapter on his life at USF. Oh, wow. And it's really cool. It's really, really cool. The, 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 movie, the book is called Out of the Gobi. So during the Chinese Cultural Revolution, he was sent off as a, as a teenager to the Gobi Desert because there was a sort of anti-intellectual thing going on in the Cultural Revolution. And uh, then when he was finally able to come back, he finished undergraduate and came to California for his MBA which he did here. That does actually sound very interesting. I'm curious to see what USF was like. like so long ago. Yeah. yeah, especially through the eyes of this young person coming out of China, coming out of the Cultural Revolution, coming, you know, really one of our early Chinese students, you know, in the new era. It was really just when Deng Xiaoping, or maybe even just, yeah, right about the time of Deng Xiaoping, 
that China began to open up to the world, and the United States in particular really wanted Chinese young people to come to American universities, make friendships, you know, and bring China into the world economy and, and the world dialogue. So my novels, the novels that I read, um, there is this Belgian writer, uh, George Simenon, uh, George Simenon, and he wrote, I don't know, 70 or 80 detective novels, all about the same detective in Paris, uh, Jules, Jules Maigret. And uh, it's sort of like, who did it? Or more, more often, it's like, will he get away with it? And this one police detective slowly, slowly, slowly solves the crime and gets the bad guy to confess and sends him to prison. <laughs> <laughs> Once in a great while, one of the novels will end where he realizes that the person who committed the crime, you know, is actually a good person and they were just defending someone else. And, and so he'll kind of like pretend that he didn't solve it. Interesting. A little off the beat cop there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so... What was it like growing up, uh, your childhood and through your teenage years? You know, we all know you as an adult man, obviously, but what was the teen Paul like? Oh, my goodness. So I'm the middle of five children. Oh, wow. Born in Los Angeles when I was five. My parents were both born in, well, Hollywood and North Hollywood, and their parents were in the movie business. But in 63, my parents had Los Angeles, super polluted. We got to get out of here. So we moved up to Los Gatos in the South Bay. My older brother and sister had tried Catholic elementary schools. One day my father said to my mother, Diane, we can get D's for free at the public school. <laughs> and I won't have to apologize to the nuns every week for Michael's behavior. <laughs> so I, I grew up going to public schools. I was, I think I was a good student, uh, maybe a little shy, freckles, uh, reddish brown hair, lots of it. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And uh, this was the, in the 70s. I graduated high school in 76. So it was sort of tie-dye and, uh, you know, corduroy and that kind of late hippy-dippy, bell-bottoms, oh, wow. that kind of stuff. Public high school, Los Gatos High. You know, again, I was a good student, maybe a little shy. Had a group of friends, but also I worked uh, after school. So starting at the age of 13... My father had a Baskin and Robbins and also a wash, dry, and fold in Los Gatos. So at 13, 14, I already started working after school a couple days a week, a couple hours at a time, 13 cents an hour. And I had my little bank, you know, savings account at uh, American Savings and Loan. And then when I think I was like 16, I went across and started working at the ice cream store. So just scooping ice cream, making root beer floats, banana splits, all those things. And I think by then I was probably up to 27 cents an hour, maybe 33. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. But it was a long time ago. Yeah, for sure. And then I saved up. I bought a car. I think when I was 17, I bought a Volvo. And that, that was kind of freedom. This is way before cell phones, internet, stuff like that. You know, the phone was one phone for the whole house, and it was on the wall in the hallway. <laughs> you know, so you really didn't call anybody. But a car meant that you could drive and meet up with your friends and, and go places and do stuff so during this time like what was your favorite thing to go do with your friends or did you pick up any hobbies that maybe you still have i did play a bit of tennis but never like never competitive just recreational but i, I enjoyed doing that my group of friends we went up to um i forget which which river it was but we went like river rafting one one day we'd go skiing in the winter so get up at like five in the morning drive all the way to Lake Tahoe, ski all day, and then drive home. 
Oh, wow. That's fun. And we had that one Safeway up in uh, like Tahoe City that we would stop at and have, you know, buy stuff for breakfast. And our, our project was to get on the very first lift up the mountain in the morning when they opened and be at the very top when they closed the lifts and hang out for 20 minutes and then ski down, be the last ones down. <laughs> and a perfect day was where you could ski all the way to the car. Oh, yeah. But that almost never happened. <laughs> <laughs> so who was your hero growing up? Who was somebody you really looked up to? Well, I have to say my father. My father was really kind of a hero for, a figure for me. He... He uh, fought in the Second World War. He was in the Navy. He was at sea the whole war. And growing, and then he got called up for Korea because he had joined the Navy Reserves. So he, was second, he fought the Second World War and the Korean War. Second World War was a pretty bad war, you know, as a naval war. There were a lot of battles, a lot of sinkings. He was on a fleet tugboat, which, not like a harbor tug, it's a bigger ship. And they would go alongside capital ships that had been torpedoed or bombed, and they'd try to put out the fires you know, pump out the water, save the ship if possible, and then take it back to Pearl Harbor. In the Korean War, uh, there was the Incheon landings, but after that, it was not much of a naval war. It was just, they were just doing the blockade and picking up, you know, downed uh, jet fighters that would ditch in the ocean. Starting when I was, I don't know, maybe 12 years old, a thing that I did almost every week with my dad was we went sailing. We went sailing. Yeah, he and his father built a sailboat in the garage of my grandfather's house. They got the plans, and then they, my grandfather was a studio carpenter, so he was really, he could make furniture, he could make anything out of wood. He was a really, so he uh, got the kit, or not even a kit, just got the plans, and then they cut up the wood, they got the fiberglass, they did the whole thing, and my grandfather never once sailed in that boat. He was afraid of water. Oh my goodness. But he was happy to see his son Jack out there, you know, having fun, so, but then my dad and I, we would go sailing like once a week. Oh, that's lovely. Usually like a Saturday. But when I was at Santa Clara, I went to Santa Clara University as an undergrad. And back then they had the Santa Clara plan. The Santa Clara plan was that they, they never had classes on Wednesdays. Mm. Wednesday was supposed to be the day when you met with your professor, you met with your study group. You, well, it was the day you went out and went to the beach. or <laughs> We called Tuesday, we called Tuesday Little Friday. <laughs> That's cute. But oftentimes on Wednesdays, by then, when I'm like 19, 20 years old, my father, he still had the sailboat on the on the trailer in the backyard, but by then he had bought a membership into a club, and for every 20 members, they would buy a yacht. So they had, you know, 29 Cal 29s and, you know, Ericsson 33s and different, they had different size boats. And on Wednesdays, most people were at work, but my dad could just take the day off, so we'd go sailing. Wow, that's lovely. You mentioned going to Santa Clara. What were you like as a university student? So I'm class of 80. So you have to kind of think, too, this is like the late 70s. Santa Clara was a fun, a fun place. Um, I won't get into too many details of some of the fun that I had. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's what this is for. And I was a college. I was a typical college student and, uh, again, had a good group of friends. Um, and I'm still in touch with some of them, you know. So like Steve Heinemann lives here in the city and, he and I, we were roommates uh, after I graduated. He was still going to college. He went to law school uh, at Santa Clara in the evenings. But uh, no, I'm still in touch with and, and socialize with a group of folks that I went to college with. And it's like 
42 years ago. We graduated 42 wow. years ago. But I had some kind of cool thing. I was in the honors program, which is a little bit like our honors college here. When I was a sophomore, early my sophomore year, I got a letter from the provost, uh, Paul Locatelli, Father Paul Locatelli. And he said, you know, I'm, I'm inviting you and one other student to be student representatives on the committee to revise the core mm. curriculum. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. So I, I, I did. I got to drop this economics class that I was taking, which I didn't like. But I had a reason to, to drop it. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the other student representative was a, a, a woman who was a year ahead of me. Her name was Janet Napolitano. So Janet Napolitano later became lieutenant, well, she was attorney general in Arizona, then she was governor of Arizona, then she ran um, Homeland Security on, in the Obama administration, and more recently she was president of the UC University of California system. So we were good, for, we've always, you know, we've stayed friends all these years. Um, my big claim to fame, and she told this story during my inauguration here, but um, yeah, I was her date to her senior prom Oh, that's so cute. That's adorable. So a little bit of involvement in student government, a little bit of involvement in just this kind of collaboration to think about the future of, of the core curriculum. By the way, we did this great work over two years, and we designed this really cool curriculum, and then it left our committee, and it went to this group and that group and that group, and what came out the other end was nothing like what we proposed. Nothing at all. So you're already get, you already were getting that taste of how you know the bureaucracy of some colleges can pan out. A camel is a horse designed by a committee. <laughs> Very clever. So I understand you were part of some political organizations while you were in college. Um, were you? Would you consider yourself very politically active in college? Well, yes, I did. I did sell the um, Socialist Daily Worker newspaper. Really? Yeah, you know, we're going to change the world. We're going to make like a super just society and, you know, have workers respected. And yeah. Yeah. How did you get involved with that? Well, so Winston Churchill said that, you know, everyone should be a socialist when they're 20 years old. Everyone should have these big dreams. You know, we get, as we get older, we get a little more realistic. We pick our fights. We want to change everything at once, but we realize we have to, you know, pick, you know, the projects where you think you can make some advancement. But, you know, as a college student, I think I'm, I was typically um, idealistic. And you do dream about, like, why can't we have, like, an egalitarian society? Why can't we have diversity, equity, and inclusion? especially the equity and inclusion parts. So and that's something I love about our, our current USF students is there's such a passion, such a thirst to make our own community just, but then to take that out you know, into the world as students, uh, but then especially after, after folks graduate. Would you still consider yourself a socialist today? I do. I, you know, I, I vote. I always vote. Uh, there isn't really a socialist party in the United States, so it's not one of my choices when I, when I do vote. But I try to choose candidates whose track record, as well as whose stated positions, lead me to think that they're going to make more room at the table uh, for people who right now don't have a spot at the table. I don't think that human rights and human dignity ends at the borders, but I think it spreads. Uh, to the whole of humanity. And so I've never given up on, on the confidence that if we talk with each other, listen to each other, we can always make a society that's more just, more humane, more sustainable. Yeah. That's actually really cool. What advice do you have of this younger version of yourself? If you could go back to the 70s and tell yourself anything, what would you say? Don't part your hair in the middle. 
it was quite a lark. But again, it was the 70s. I would say to myself, um, don't be afraid to follow your dreams. So, you know, when I was growing up, I never really thought much about being a priest. But when I was at Santa Clara University, I met some Jesuits and I had some Jesuits as professors. And I was really curious. Like, that's an interesting way to spend your life. You know, living together in a big community, uh, dedicating yourself to teaching and research, uh, mentoring students, and uh, just kind of being a, a helpful presence in the lives of people. So after I graduated, I, but I, I hesitated for about a year, uh, and then I finally got the courage to go and talk to one of the Jesuits at Santa Clara and said, you know, I'm, I'm just curious about what it would, how it would work, you know, if I were to apply to become a Jesuit. And this guy was like shocked. He was shocked. He said, because he always told me, he said, Paul, you know, if you want to change the world for the better, you have to go into business or politics or education. So I came back and said, you know, uh, Father Phipps, it was Charlie Phipps. I said, I think I'll do all three. Maybe I'll be a Jesuit. <laughs> do you feel fulfilled with that decision like to this day it's it's been i just celebrated my 40th um anniversary of entrance Wow. 40 That's years gorgeous. you know and it's like i see my friends who are celebrating 40 years of marriage you know and they're still together and the kids are there you know kids are all right and everything. it's not it's not a perfect life there are no perfect lives i had this one friend uh, denise carmody she's retired now from santa clara but she was provost down there and we were given a retreat once together. And she was saying, you know, when you're 20 years old, you say to God, okay, God, just part the waters, show me the straight path, you know, to my future, the future you want for me. And then you get to be 60 and you look back and you say like, well, I was over here and then I zigged this way and then I zagged that way. And my whole life was this kind of interesting series of almost random changes. Mm. And, and you say to God, like, why did I have this kind of zigzag instead of the straight line. And God says, that's exactly what I wanted for you. You learned important things along the way. You met really good people. They helped you. You helped them. Uh, so I think that maybe, you know, I'm, so I'm, I'm, I'll be 65 years old this winter. And I still feel, I'm not, I'm not young, but I don't feel old. I don't feel old. Young inside. But uh, I'm, I'm, I'm happy. Happy with my life, happy with my work, happy to be here uh, with our students, with our staff, with our faculty. It's a, I mean, it's hard for us to see it from inside, but given that I've worked at two other universities and I've been a trustee at four other universities, ours is a pretty special place. It's a pretty special place. If I may ask, when is your birthday? February 15th. Oh, an Aquarius. Aquarius. Nice. Very nice. How did you celebrate your last birthday? Beth and Mark Wall Hansen. So uh, Beth is a USF alumna. Mark is a Santa Clara alumnus. He was about my time. Um, they took me out to dinner. Uh, we went to Frascati and had a very nice, uh, very nice dinner. But just even more so, a really nice conversation. I mean, dinner is it's like the food is important. It's got to be tasty and, and pretty to look at. But if you know, the conversation is going so well, you almost forget about the food because you're telling stories and you're laughing. Yeah. And then the next night we had, you know, like the second round of the birthday party. And that was with some of my Santa Clara alumni friends at, at their house here in the city. Going back to more of your college years during that, like um, that four year period, I know that you were kind of like 
you're interested in the Jesuit priesthood. Other than that, like, what did you see yourself doing when you graduated? I was a history major. I was a pre-law. I was in the pre-law program. I took the LSAT exam. I was admitted to uh, Boston University School of Law and NYU School of Law. I was not admitted into the University of Virginia, where I really wanted to go. The summer after graduation, I was over in Strasbourg in France. I was working at a at the train station restaurant, you know, as an apprentice in the kitchen. And I'd work a one week with the, the rotisseur where everything got roasted and fried, and then one week with the saucier where everything, you know, the stews and the sauces and everything were made, everything was sauteed, or then one week with the garde manger where the salads and aspic and all the cold stuff was done. I learned how to do butchery so I could take a pig apart, take a cow, half a cow apart. And it was every, cooking from scratch. It, you know, this was French cuisine at its best. Um, and that summer, while I was there, I did make the decision to postpone law school. So this is back, you know, communication again. You go to a post office, you give them some money, they give you these um, tokens, and then you go into like these phone booths in the post office, and you put, you put the token in, and then you dial, you know, and you have to remember it's an like eight-hour time difference or whatever. And so I called my parents, and I talked to my mom, and I said, you know, I'm... I'm I'm okay. Everything's fine. I'm going to stay here a bit longer and I'm going to like delay law school for a year. She was not happy <laughs> at all. <laughs> She's like, what's going on? Like, oh, I'm just, you know, I'm just kind of thinking about some stuff and just want to be sure that I know what I'm going to do. So I put off law school and then instead I went to the Jesuits. Oh, wow. I'm sorry. We just really just went to you living in France. <laughs> Could you tell us more about living in France or if you still cook those meals? Yeah, after my sophomore year in college, I went to Switzerland, lived with a family and worked in a grocery store in the German-speaking section of Switzerland. And until then, I'd, I'd been to Mexico once, just across the border, you know, down to Ensenada. But I had not, and I'd been up to British Columbia as a family we'd gone camping in British Columbia. But I'd never traveled until, you know, then I, I, I did this this thing in, in, in college where I landed in Paris and then stayed in Paris for a few days and then took the train to Switzerland and then did this summer. And then came back and then I helped out the, the guy who organized this program. And so he let me repeat it two years later. And I, that time I went to France, to, to Strasbourg. And uh, Mitterrand had just been elected president and all of the employers were afraid that uh, Mitterrand was going to nationalize. Every, he was a socialist. And he was afraid everything was going to get nationalized, so they weren't promising very many summer jobs. So my two choices were uh, apprentice in a restaurant or gardener at an institute for the blind. And the restaurant paid better. <laughs> so I, and I knew that I would eat. <laughs> Later, as a Jesuit, I did two-year novitiate. Uh, during those two years, I was in Mexico for almost three months. A uh, different place, Tijuana, and then further south in Guaymas. And then um, after the, the novitiate, after my first two years, I was sent to Munich, Germany, and I did a second bachelor's degree in philosophy. Came back, taught high school up in Sacramento for a few years, and went to Cambridge, Massachusetts for my theology studies. One summer went back to Munich uh, and did a directed reading course there. So I love living in southern Germany. It's like, it's kind of a magical place. Then um, after I was finishing my, my theology studies, the provincial told me that I was going to be sent to the university, so I had to get a doctorate. So then I researched and looked and looked and looked, and I ended up going to Paris 
uh, to the University of Paris, the Sorbonne, where actually in Paris I was at two universities, the Catholic University and the State University, and I did uh, two doctorates, one in sociology of religion and one in ecclesiology, which is like the theology of the church's self-understanding. Wow. How many degrees do you have, if I may ask? It's so funny. Um, I have two bachelors, three masters, and two doctorates. Oh, wow. Casual. Very, yeah. Very easy. Casual. Easy to do. You know, <laughs> just knock out your first. It's a long wind-up for a wild pitch. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. So you mentioned that you had to apply to be part of the Jesuit priesthood, right? What was that application process like? Like, what did you have to do? First, the most important part was I met with uh, Father Fran Smith, who was the rector of the Jesuit community at Santa Clara. And we met like every two or three weeks for almost a year. Wow. You know, and he's just like, he asked me, I said, how's your prayer life? You know, how, how, do you have friends? You know, what are you doing? How do you feel? Uh, and then at a certain point, he said, you know, Paul, it seems like you, you'd make a good Jesuit. Um, but the first two years is really for us to decide whether we want you to spend your life with us and also for you to decide whether you want to spend your life with us. So that's why they call it a novitiate because we're novices. It's like it's like a two-year engagement before two people get mar married. But also then before I, before I was accepted for entrance, I had to write a kind of a little biography. Uh, I had to have, go see a medical doctor. I had to go see a psychiatrist. Um, you know, they want to kind of screen us to make sure that we're good people, healthy people. You've heard about all of the sexual abuse that priests committed. Those were guys who entered, you know, maybe 50, 60 years ago, and there was no psychological screening back then. Now we have screening where we're able to, you can't, it's not 100% effective, but it, we're much better at figuring out whether somebody is mature and, you know, kind and, and respectful of others. Also, as a novice, my novice master made sure that every single one of us had some kind of a experiment, some kind of a work where we were, we were supervised by a woman because he wanted to see if we would, you know, be cool with having a, a woman as our supervisor, superior, and director. Be cool with having a, a woman as our supervisor, superior, and director. And one guy wasn't, and so he was dismissed. I think that that's actually really cool. I mean, I didn't, while I was aware that it was like a long process to just get into the priesthood, I think that it is actually kind of admirable that they have all of these steps and that you followed all of these steps, like, Two years of your life is a long time. It is a long time. Yeah, I was, I guess I'd, I'd never really thought about what it takes to join the priesthood. I know that's a huge commitment, but I guess I kind of just assumed the church would be like, oh, okay, yeah, sure. You want to join? Let's do it. <laughs> well, now the Jesuits are a little particular. So we are Catholic priests, but we're, you know, within this order inside the church. And it's actually about 10 years uh, before you're ordained a priest. From the, from the day you enter until you're ordained, it's like 10 years, nine years for the diaconate, and then another year before you're a priest. And then, but technically, I was still on probation. I was still a scholastic, you know, until I did my tertianship, which is sort of like you go back after 20 years and you kind of redo a year of the novitiate, but with guys your age. And then you're, you're invited to pronounce final vows. So I think I was 25 years a Jesuit before I was fully incorporated and taken off of probation. Wow, that is intense. Which is kind of normal these days. It's, it's just a normal thing. I have a question for you. How are you feeling like while you were in like this waiting period, just waiting to be ordained? Did you feel excited, nervous, hopeful? Yes. <laughs> yes. Excited, nervous, hopeful. Um, you know, one thing that's 
you know, the Jesuits have been around for 450 years. And something that's actually been kind of true for the whole time is about two-thirds of the guys who enter the novitiate uh, leave again. You know, maybe during the novitiate, maybe afterwards. And only about one-third will really stay, you know, long-term. And, you know, part of it, and then, you know, but that's not that much different from the percentage of people who, you know, decide they fall in love and they decide to get married. And then a year, five, 10, 20 years later, they say, you know, this is no longer uh, fulfilling for me. You know, not that you're a bad person, but, you know, I, I need to make a decision. So a lot, so I, we were 16 uh, guys who entered in my class down in Santa Barbara. The division was in Santa Barbara at the time. 11 of us took first vows two years later. Five of us got ordained. Oh, wow. And since then, one of the five has, has passed away, uh, Louis Kiwis, who, who worked here at USF and then down at Santa Barbara in a parish. Um, yeah. So four of us are, are still kicking after 40 years. Oh, my goodness. So it's much easier to get into USF then. <laughs> it is, although, you know, USF is also a life-changing or a life-affirming, you know, and we want, you know, I, we want, I want our students to kind of get a sense of vocation you know, and so as they're graduating, I see this all the time. They're not saying, like, what's the highest paying job I can get? They're saying, like, where can I make the biggest impact? You know, and what, what job, what profession, what career is going to be fulfilling to me? And so I'll meet alums and I'll say, like, if you won the lottery, and by the way, you should not play the lottery. The odds are terrible. <laughs> but if you won the lottery, would you go to work the next day? And a lot of them say yes. Because oh, really? they say, I love my work. Now, winning the lottery would be awesome because I'd have no financial worries for the rest of my life. I could be charitable. I could support, you know, causes I believe in. But I love my work. My work is fulfilling. Uh, my work is important. My work, you know, whether it's as a nurse or as a physician or, you know, in government, people are like a lot of our alums, the people I talk to. They feel like they're living out a vocation. That they've so the universe has invited them to be an elementary school teacher, <laughs> and then you know the best thing about being a teacher is you know a former student comes back 15 years later and says, "Miss Jordan, you changed my life." <laughs> That's lovely. Well, is there anything in particular that you want students to know about you? You know, because not every student gets the chance to meet with you or talk to you in the kind of setting that we're talking. So, is there anything that you just really want them to know about you? What I love is when students just stop me on campus and introduce themselves. And I'll, I, you know, I'll, I'll ask students to do that at new student orientation. And I'm always, you know, pleased when someone will, will do it. I mean, I'm fortunate in that I do get to know the students in Senate. I do get to know, you know, I get to meet some of our journalists. Um, I do, you know, like at commencement, it's not, I don't know that many students really well, but I've gotten to know some students and it's just so cool when they walk across the sanctuary in St. Ignatius Church and the, the accomplishment, you know, and the joy of that day. But it was every day up until that day that got them to that spot. And that spot is just, they're just stepping across a line into the next chapter of their life. But no, I'm always, I'm always happy to, to meet students. And I'm fortunate, like with the Reed Scholars, so Peter Reed's an alumnus and he funds a special scholarship program. So I'll meet with these Reed scholars a couple times a year for four years. So I really get to know them over time. And it's so fascinating for them, you know, to meet them as first year students early on. And they're so nervous. 
and they're like still trying to figure out am i supposed to be here and then you 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 see them progress all the way through their whole education and they're so poised and they're so confident as they're moving you know towards graduation that's true with our master's students it's true with our doctoral students uh, they start in point a and they get to point b and along the way they've found a, that sense of that sense of vocation that sense of uh, joy if, if again if they won the lottery they would go, they would go to work the next day maybe they'd show up an hour later <laughs> with a nice car. <laughs> nice car speaking of nice cars actually i was wondering if you would address a rumor that me and jordan have both heard many times, many, many times. is it true that you have a ferrari no i have a uh, an, an eight-year-old mini cooper manual hey. shift manual shift uh it's not mine it belongs to the university but it's put at my disposal. So no, I don't drive a Ferrari or a, a Jaguar to the airport to my private jet. <laughs> I don't have a private jet. No, I've, I'd also heard Tesla and I was like, that one would make the most sense to me. I'm very surprised by Mini Cooper. I'm very surprised by Mini Cooper. How do you like it? It's a good little car. <laughs> you know, it's only got 45,000 miles on it. You know, I don't go very far, but you know, I park it in up on, on Lone Mountain. What color is it? Kind of gray, oh. s- silver gray. And two-door, six-speed, manual shift. All right, if anyone sees a gray two-door Mini Cooper on campus, you know whose it is. And if it gets towed, you know who to call. <laughs> well, it's got a little parking sticker in the window. It says Loyola House Jesuit Community. It's got USF uh, license frame on the back. Oh, cute. <laughs> That's lovely. Father Paul, I just wanted your opinion on something. So we were thinking of our mascot and how it reflects the university. What do you think about a possible mascot change? I know that a long time ago, the Foghorn initiated a change in mascot, and we've put the question out there to students, and it's been a big conversation online and on social media. What do you think about the change of Don Francisco? Yeah, so uh, we did change mascots already once in our history. Mm -hmm. 1930, we were the Gray Fog. Yep. And we became the Dons. There is some kind of conversation about, you know, is it a Don Francisco de Haro? Don Francisco de Haro. So Don just means sir, right? Doña is the feminine. Uh, and Don Francisco de Haro was the first mayor of the Spanish settlement here. So it's kind of a cool, you know, the Dons, it's sort of a hearkening back to you know, the pre-U.S. Uh, Mexican time, the pre-Mexican Spanish time. And can we also then say it's a way of encounter with... Uh, the Ohlone people who have been here for 13,500 years. So I like something that connects us to our history. Mm-hmm. If you did have a say, if we had to change the mascot, what would be your pick? Would you want to go back to the fog? Would you want an animal? We got wolves on campus. Goats. We got goats. I'm a big proponent for a goat. Really? Yeah, it'd be great for basketball because we're the goats, greatest of all time. Greatest of all times, yeah. <laughs> I think bunnies. We could be the fighting bunnies. The bunnies? The USF bunnies? It'd be very cute, not very ferocious. Oh, didn't didn't you see um, uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail? Oh. Those rabbits are just deadly. <laughs> <laughs> the USF deadly rabbits. Fan. Fantastic. Father Fitzgerald is in vote of bunnies. <laughs> yes. Wow. Bunnies. All right. We'll keep that in mind for sure. <laughs> okay. Well, whoa, Jordan, do you hear that? Oh 
my goodness. The fog is rolling in. That means we got to wrap up. Father, thanks so much again for coming in to speak with us. Catch the Fog Pod next time.